crank one out. I'll do a solo episode. Because that's the episode. thing. Those, that, that first I'll do one a solo had... episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be me. You know? We're going to talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. Andy's Apple Box. <laughs> Andy's Apple Box. That's pretty good. That's good, yeah. I'm on it. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm here with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. Our show, The Gauntlet, is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week, and the other two hosts then have to find films that match that topic, kind of buck up against that topic, or just engage with that topic in, uh, in an unconventional way sometimes. Anyways, I am the one who was tasked with selecting the topic this week, and part of it was inspired by us having done this show for a year and thinking about all the different topics we've covered. And it was a sort of a collective act of looking backwards. We all had celebrated the anniversary in a variety of ways, and I was inspired then to to look way, way back. And um, in doing so, I was thinking about, you know, my childhood and how growing up, I, you know, I did like fantasy movies. I liked films set in the medieval period. And I was also a fan of going to medieval times, which is a odd thing that you um, can see off I-90 if you're driving from Chicago to the northwest suburbs. And it is just this large castle that uh, really <laughs> sticks out like a sore thumb straight off the highway in an otherwise very flat looking area very anachronistic and always something that I thought was was super fun as a kid and I went a few times you know there's a picture of me sitting next to the king with my big flowing cape uh one year when we went with my sister the one of the knights you know like he he stuck out his lance and bestowed upon her for her her birthday uh, like a ribbon of some sort so that was something I always enjoyed doing as a kid and you know, I, I, I grew up loving, like, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Arthurian legends. So I thought, you know what, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to medieval times and let's stomp around. Let's clang around with our armor and, you know, futz around in the mud. And that's certainly <laughs> what both of you provided for me. It was, uh, I, the, the itch has been scratched, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, Marsh, you, you picked one of my all-time favorite films and it was a joy to revisit it. And then Andy picked a film that I haven't seen since I was a kid. I remembered my dad loved it, and he had rented it from from Blockbuster. And I remembered thinking it was really cool, but it was only fleeting images that remained. So it was pretty, it was pretty fun uh, checking it out again, and especially back to back with um, the film Marsh picked. I I watched these back to back, and it was a. It was a night to remember, to say the least. So let's let's start with you, Marge, because your film uh, came out a bit earlier. So tell us a bit about what you brought. Well, when you 
specifically mentioned when you introduced the topic, you know, you said you wanted to hear the hear the sound of armor or see like knights in armor or whatever. Inevitably my my mind went to to one place and that place is Robert Brisson's 1974 film Lancelot Duloc. This is, of course, uh, Brisson's take on the, the you know, uh, misadventures of Lancelot. And uh, in typical Brisson fashion, he imposes his austere style on the subject and material. So His will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His will on the material, absolutely. And so, really, you know, it's... Uh, I think it, it's unique among uh, takes on this story because it's kind of like a, a chronologically like late, late, late Arthurian tale, right? Because ultimately, this is a film about the dissolution of the Arthurian kingdom, mostly viewed through the perspective of Lancelot, right? At the beginning of the film, they have failed uh, in their attempt to find the Holy Grail. There is uh, adultery and strife in the kingdom, right? Which will ultimately tear everyone apart. But that's, again, a, a summary of a plot. And Brisson doesn't really, you know, give us uh, your traditional plot, obviously. He uh, instead gives us the, yeah, you know, in his own way, the sights and sounds of this period and of these tales. So it is as much about the clanking of chain mail and armor uh, as it is about everything else. And uh, in the way sound plays a role in this film, I think uh, it's one of the most advanced sound films I think I can think of, you know, so that'll be a fun thing to talk about. But uh I also want to note, you know, before I hand it over to Andy, that I, I always joke that this is Brisson's splatter film, because in addition to, you know, his, his normal stuff, we also get him, you know, in as much of an action mode as we uh, ever saw him. And the film opens and closes with uh, some very gratuitous violence and very brutal <laughs> Violence. Yeah, I think on its own, it's it's more graphic than anything you see in in the film that I chose. Yes, <laughs> in in certain ways, absolutely. And I think Brisson's naturalism or his you know spiritual naturalism, you know, meeting uh, this kind of gruff violence is is very fascinating. And uh, I've always you know loved this movie and just been like totally struck by it. And of course, none of us could pick Excalibur because we've already had Borman on the pod twice. So... Uh, <laughs> Recently. <laughs> Recently, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, uh, that's Lancelot Duloc. Thank you, thank you. So, those stories are set typically in the 5th or 6th centuries, and Andy, yours takes place uh, a little bit deeper into the, sort of, the middle of the medieval period. So, tell us a little bit about what you brought. Were you about to say the middle of the Middle Ages? Middle of the Middle. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when we, when Marsh and I had like convened, we 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 both basically had the same short list of films, uh, which is a good sign always. You know that our brains are are heading in the same direction. And the film that I ultimately chose is one that is quite maligned. 
and I think understandably so, but I am one of the, the, the defenders of this film. I think it's a very, very fun trip uh, into uh, the period in a very sort of unique way. Uh, it's a great adventure film, and it's a film that I've watched a lot. I realized when I, when I was re-watching it again just how many times... I have revisited this movie and and not because I think it's one of the best movies ever made but just because I think this movie is a is a is an effortless uh jaunt through this period and a lot of those things that you described Ryan it's uh it's a film from the 90s, uh, the, the decade that uh, kind of belonged to Michael Crichton in Hollywood. Uh, but it is a, a sort of late Crichton film. And it's a film that that I think kind of hurt his career. It's a film that definitely hurt the director's career in a big way. Uh, that would be John McTiernan. And the film is... The 13th Warrior from 1999. This is a movie, for those who haven't seen it, that is an adaptation of Crichton's novel, The Eaters of the Dead. And uh, it's a book that I read many years ago. I think I saw this movie first, and then, you know, when learning about the source material, felt I had to go and check it out, because I really liked the, the movie. And, and even in Crichton's own you know, from his own lips, he, he says it's a pretty good adaptation of the source material, but it is quite different uh, in its structure and in its form on a certain level. The novel is Crichton's attempt at turning Beowulf into a historical procedural. Uh, it is the story of uh, Beowulf and Grendel through the eyes of a poet from the Middle East whose name is Ahmed Ibn Fadlan, Ibn Al-Abbas, Ibn Rashid, Ibn Hamad, who became, in history, this is a, an actual person who lived, an ambassador to the north. He was sent north from the Middle East to meet people to be a, a sort of emissary of the Muslim faith, and he ended up linking up with a group of Volga Vikings, Vikings from sort of, you know, southern, what now would be like southern Russia, the Caucasus, that sort of thing. Um, but then the novel becomes total fantasy, and it, it, it takes... And the movie as well, they, they, they take Ahmed Ibn Fadlan north with this group of Vikings, to assist a village that is being beset upon by some sort of horrific presence. People are being killed and eaten, and it's up to the Vikings and their reluctant Muslim poet friend to go and seek out this great evil and, and, and do something about it. Uh, the film stars Antonio Banderas, the Spaniard, as the, uh, the, the, the Arab poet, as he's described. Uh, in a bit of very 90s Hollywood casting. I think it's a great adventure film. I think it's it's a lot of fun. It really moves. It's only an hour and 40 minutes long, but I mean, honestly, it feels like 70 minutes to me. But it is also a very troubled production. It uh, had huge, huge issues when they were making it. Uh, apparently, Crichton and McTiernan fell out in a big way. Uh, it required reshoots, costly, costly reshoots in which Crichton basically took over directing from McTiernan uh, near the end of the film. 
it ballooned the budget. The film had a terrible release, and it is considered one of the biggest bombs in box office, in recent box office history anyway. And yet, in spite of that, to me, I think it is a very interesting film, even if it is the film that may have pushed McTiernan over the edge to start wiretapping everybody in Hollywood <laughs> and get him, uh, yeah. you know, spun up with paranoia about his yeah. career and ultimately thrown in the slam. Yeah, I mean, he did wiretap the next producer he worked with, so there's we'll some, get, something we'll to be said into, for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that perhaps in more detail. <laughs> thank you, thank you both. So there were, I think, surprisingly, a lot of things that these films shared, but it's sort of impossible not to just immediately address the radically different approaches to form and how those sort of communicate with each other when we've got these films side by side. So watching them back to back was was really unique, particularly for this double feature, because while watching Lancelot, there's such precision with what we're seeing and what we're hearing. You know, one of Brassan's maxims is if an image can be replaced with a sound, he'll do it. And that's something that happens a lot throughout the film. Characters exiting the frame and instead of watching what they're doing off screen, such as just going through a door or maybe grabbing some water, etc., it's something we hear. And Brassan takes that to extremes. You know, we sometimes we don't see battles. We just hear them briefly, and then we see the aftermath, because all of that becomes implied. And similar to a jousting tournament at one point in the film, we'll, we'll go over that sequence in much greater detail, but the things he tells us to look at and to listen to are not usually what you would typically see in a production like this. And then, conversely, in 13th Warrior, you know, we're shown everything in great detail. And oddly enough, I remembered even thinking that I was hearing less in the 13th Warrior, even though there is obviously much more sound. There's music, there seem to be more sound effects, but by isolating them, Brassan makes me feel like I'm hearing more things. It was shocking to not hear everybody's armor clanking constantly just by the matter of them breathing. Obviously, what they're wearing is radically different. There's much less metal, you know, they're just... Primarily the Vikings have like cloth with big like metal breastplates. But even in, in Lancelot, there's a moment where he takes off his armor and he hugs Guinevere and you can hear the cloth hug. <laughs> like you can, you hear the cloth against cloth. So even there we hear it. Well, I think it's, you know, a very funny <laughs> double feature. I mean, I already joked on Twitter that this double feature is the uh, black flag Bellatar shirt, you know, like <laughs> it's that's exactly what's going on here. Holy shit. And yeah. ju just as much as Brisson defined himself as kind of against a certain type of movie spectacle. On the other hand, John McTiernan is one of the greatest executors and proponents of a certain kind of Hollywood spectacle, right? So, I mean, obviously we have uh, a very stark contrast as, as you're bringing up in terms of, yeah, fast and slow, minimalism versus excess. But one thing that I, I that really did strike me as, as something that they had in common is kind of certain elements of their of their editing because McTiernan kind of, you know, 
he shoots a million shots. Yeah. You know, there's a cut every, every two seconds, like in a very 90s intensified continuity way. But especially in, in a lot of the, the action sort of fighting sequences, which are incredible, they are kind of impressionistic, right? Because he's moving so fast, you really don't have a great sense of, of space, right? But ultimately, you have a great impression of the battle. Mm. Uh, and in the same way, I think that Brisson creates impressions um, through his, you know, widely regarded constructive editing, where he doesn't give you an establishing shot. You're just somewhere, you know? And I think both films have a certain amount of disorientation that I think serves the material well. Yeah. I completely agree. That's an interesting way of reading the action scenes in 13th Warrior because I remembered finding it odd that some of the largest scale battles had chunks of it that are full of dissolves. And in a way, I found myself thinking I, I was spatially confused a couple of times, not in a way that I found distracting, but something I found slightly atypical of a Hollywood action film like this. You know, there's usually a clarity of action, but I did walk away with a very strong impression of the battle. So I think that's an interesting way of, of framing it. Yeah, I think in the case of The 13th Warrior, focusing on it intensively this time around, so that's a good word that you used before, Marsh, like... I think I thought about it a lot more in terms of, you know, how uh, perspective plays a role in that Im almost impressionism that you find in the film. That that this film is is rooted in the perspective of Antonio Banderas's character, who is new to all of this. All of this is shocking to him, and and we you know, root ourselves in him. You know, he is the guy that we're following and, and our perspective is, is his perspective. So especially like when he first arrives, you know, with these Vikings, all of his experiences with them are chaotic and he doesn't understand what's going on. And the first encounter, like even, you know, when they, they get there and they have their first encounter with these creatures, it is almost pitch black. And so not only is it like cut a certain way, but it but it's lit a certain way. And it's terrifying because you don't see what these things are. And they are just these these horrific, monstrous like entities. They're like shadows with claws more than anything. And so I think it really is like a conscious choice. And yet, like as he gets more comfortable with his surroundings and his comrades and even what they're facing, we start to see more of it. We start to see more clarity. We start to to get a sense of, of what we're actually facing, what he's actually facing, and his confidence grows. But it is still like frantic and chaotic. And honestly, uh, I think some of the best action set pieces in a film of this kind, you know, because of the way they look and, and as you mentioned, because of the way that they're, they're assembled. I was really surprised, you know, you talking about the, some of the darkness and like just the low light in general in the 13th warrior felt really daring to me for a film of this scale. And I was surprised having now revisited Lancelot and the first time I had seen it was the original DVD master. And the original copy I had seen is so much brighter. The exposure is ramped up 
so much. And seeing this restoration and then revisiting like Rosenbaum's old piece on it and some other reviews from the time. He cites how dark it is in 1974. So that's how you know the Blu-ray is accurate. Yeah. I had the, yeah, I had the exact <laughs> same experience. And I yeah, the I think both of these films, especially in their portrayal of the medieval wilderness, deal with like a very dark and foreboding woods where it is at times hard to see things that are going on. I mean, think about that in juxtaposition with so many other medieval films where the forests feel mythical and they feel bright. I mean, think about the forests at times in Excalibur. It feels like a fairy tale, obviously. Bright green, vivid. All the leaves look wet. It's shining, right? Just almost overexposed little droplets of light all over the screen. But both of these films treat the harsh realities of the period and just the general nature and atmosphere as something quite dark. They take the dark ages quite literally here. Definitely. But yeah, 13th Warrior is like unbelievably dim. Yeah, it's, I mean, even like what you were talking about, Andy, with that that action sequence, the first one where they're like fighting these, you know, monsters or what they think are monsters. I mean, it is a, an entire set piece lit backlit like in silhouette so like again it's not a a a lack of coherence it's like by design Mm -hmm. this uh you know in that rooted sort of confused perspective but yeah i mean i think the way that both films sort of deal with that also comes from the worlds that they're depicting right so in 13th warrior it's this decaying old town kingdom that they go to, you know, help, right? There's been a call for help. There's these monsters attacking, you know, this village or, or whatever you want to call it. And they go up there like the seven samurai, you know, and it's this destitute uh, sort of thing. Now, unfortunately, uh, I think there's a lot lost in you know uh the the making of the film that is is unexplained about the sort of like setup going on there right <laughs> i think you can tell that's like completely hacked out of the movie because Diane Venora is second build and she has no lines yeah. which is how you can tell a movie got real fucked up uh in yeah. in the making of it you know but still what comes across is that like the throne room is fucking leaking Right. (laughs) That's the world that we're in here. Similarly, in Brisson, it's like, again, this decaying kingdom. Right. Yeah. When we enter uh, Camelot in Brisson's film, like one of the first things we experience is King Arthur, like telling everybody he's locking the doors to the to the round table room because there's no fucking point to even have it anymore because everybody's dead. It's just an empty room and a bunch of empty chairs. And he's just like, oh, what's the point? You know, this guy's dead. This guy's dead. This guy's dead. It would seem so sad to sit here with so many empty chairs. So I'm locking this room for good, folks. The round table's done. It's over. You know, when we first encounter Lancelot, The first time we see him, the very first thing he says is, I've lost my way. And his his armor is all covered in rust, you know? Mm -hmm. This is the decay, as you mentioned, of what was once a great kingdom. And I think, yeah, both films, films share that. These are kingdoms in disrepair. These are kingdoms that have fallen on very, very, very dark times, uh, one film, of course, though, we may see some redemption, and the other, 
like forget about it pal like those days are over you know yeah absolutely i mean that's one of the i think the main points of divergence between the two films is how the 13th warrior at times ends up being about camaraderie and a coming together and like uplifting of each other while Lancelot, as Dave Kerr mentions in his Chicago Reader Capsule, is describing a Camelot of fading glory where the ideals of chivalry and spiritual purity are threatened by a modern pragmatic mentality. And Lancelot is very much a film about moving farther and farther away from God and spirituality and finding ourselves lost in the cynicism of our fellow man and society. And that darkness does not let up at any point in the film. It just leans harder and harder into that with like a ruthless precision (laughs) because it's Frisson. But yeah, you are never forgetting that fact while encountering this film. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Brisson uh, believes in a, believed in a type of Catholicism that believed in predestination, which is why you see it so often uh, in his films, right? These sort of like, it can only go, you know, one way. Mm-hmm. L'argent can only <laughs> go to that conclusion because he has this like, yeah, predestination mindset. I mean, when we see Lancelot in the beginning, right? He's met by this, this farmer woman, you know, this peasant yeah. uh, and and she tells her daughter before he shows up that you know uh, if your steps precede you you'll be dead in a year yeah and then he shows up and goes I'm lost you yeah. know like I mean the statement is totally clear and we hear his horse before we see him yes off screen space right as we do throughout the rest of the movie right yeah. everybody has a moment where uh, we hear them before we see them. Yes. You know, Brisson opens so many of his scenes on just like a doorway and we hear coming down the hall, like clank, clank, clank. And then some guys <laughs> coming in and being like, boy, man, the moon, is it being suffocated? We're having an argument. I say it's being suffocated. He says it's being strangled or whatever. It's like, <laughs> yeah, these guys are all toast, man. You know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it, it struck me too. I, you know, I wrote down at some point during the 13th Warrior, uh, you know, Antonio Ben Deris is becoming warrior, right? Because he starts in the beginning as this this poet from the Middle East, and he even says, like, I'm not, you know, he gets sort of like drafted into this this band, and he's like, I'm not a fighter, I'm not a warrior, I don't really, it's not really my bag, you know? And ultimately, yeah, it's it's the Hollywood hero's journey. He goes and becomes a warrior and becomes friends with all these Viking bros, mm. you know? And then Lancelot is like, unbecoming warrior mm-hmm. right because his he's had his glory days he's the best goddamn fighter in the world but you know he's got other problems yeah. problems with god and problems with guinevere uh and it is him going from you know before the movie opens the greatest warrior in the world to just another fucking corpse in a suit of armor you know mm-hmm. a faceless corpse because the film draws so much attention to the absent faces through a visor, you know? And, you know, honestly, again, going back to, like, the 13th Warriors uh, litany of problems in terms of its editing, in terms of missing scenes, missing (laughs) subplots, 
from what I understand, you know, a big issue with them wanting reshoots was that McTiernan's original version, like the test audiences, like hated it. Of course. And I think his was much darker and much more downbeat, especially towards the ending. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was meant, I think, be a much more like elegiac and sad a- ending for these great Vikings. You know, like well, McTiernan's ending is in the movie. Yes. They just added the Crichton ending on top of it, which is insane. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, considering like who put up the money, ultimately Disney, right? Like they they were not down with a a bleak, almost apocalyptic ending for these Vikings and their their way of life. Yeah, they would have been like Arthur at the beginning of Lancelot Duloc, you know, just like, there's only three of us. You yeah, know? <laughs> but that's, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, you 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 get that from even the beginning of, of the 13th Warrior because when he first encounters the Vikings, when he first like meets them and, and comes across their their band, we learn that the king of this particular group, this 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 group of Vikings, has died, and and one of the first things he gets to witness is this Viking funeral, you know, where he's put on one of the long ships and it's it's being burned, and he hears the the Viking prayer, which is actually kind of funny because I learned that the Viking prayer, which has become, you know, you can see it everywhere on the internet, you know, this like Viking prayer that you hear prominently in the film several times, uh, was basically like created for this made up. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's cited in other Viking movies, including one of the Thor movies. Someone says it. Yes. Uh, And it's just some some screenwriter bullshit from this movie. Yes, exactly. People think it's real. Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother, my sisters, and my brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my people back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them in the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. But, you know, that, that aside, Omar Sharif, who uh, is a sort of, uh, you know, sidekick to Antonio Banderas, he's kind of like his, you know, his squire or his, you know, his servant or something like that. Uh, he explains to him that, you know, one of these Vikings basically says, this is the last time you're ever going to see something like this. That is the old way. So already we get this glimpse that for even these Vikings, their, their days are numbered. Their way of life is, is ending. It's passing. And so, yeah, I, I think perhaps if we had McTiernan's ultimate vision, it would have felt more like Laszlo, that there would have been this heroic thing that sort of happened, but but a, a, an emptiness in it. The Peckinpah version. Yes. You know, yeah. The old and the new, like, clashing, you know? I mean, I think it's there, you know, you can see it in, in 13th Warrior, but yeah, it becomes it becomes muddled, right? Uh, obviously. You know, there's a funny moment in the 13th Warrior that I, I keep thinking about where, obviously because Antonio Banderas is in a big Hollywood film, he's speaking English in the film, but it's English standing in for, for Arabic initially. And when he says who he is, he mentions saying Eben means son of. Mm-hmm. So does that mean in Arabic he said Eben means Eben? Because isn't the idea that he's yelling in Arabic at them? <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. I would say this. I mean, again, going back to that perspective thing, that is one of the the things that I've always really loved. There are some some really cool touches in the 13th Warrior, again, about that and about perspective and perspective 
shifts and, and the whole language issue and how this film deals with it, I, I feel is totally unique. I've, I don't think I've ever seen another film do it in this way. And it's very novel, which is that, yes, like when we first encounter Antonio Banderas, he's speaking Arabic, but it's in English for us. And then when he mm-hmm. encounters the Norsemen, they're speaking Norwegian. And his only uh, way of, of communicating with them at first is because, you know, they say try Greek at a certain point. And, and Omar Sharif speaks Greek. So then he finds one of the Vikings who speaks Greek. And when he goes on his journey with them, he's like, what the fuck am I going to do? I don't speak their language. And we get this, this, this awesome montage of their journey north that, you know, at first we just see him looking at all the Vikings and they're all speaking Norwegian. And there are these dissolves that happen where in their Norwegian we start catching glimpses of English. And then eventually we get a moment where Antonio Banderas is sitting there and they're all speaking English. And one of them is just like talking shit about him and like making fun of him. And then he suddenly speaks to them in English and they all just like are fucking shook. They're frozen. probably was some small colored camp girl. Looks like that one's mother. <laughs> My mother <laughs> was a pure woman from a noble family. And I at least know who my father is. You know, and it leads to this moment of confrontation, of course, because he insults one of them back in, presumably now, their language, right? Norwegian. You know, that is one of the things that people have brought up about the film, of being like, you know, what are these Vikings? Because they're they're sort of like hodgepodge. And and I've always like... I think that's how it was, though. Yeah, I've always read it as, you know, they're just, they're all referred to as Northmen. So they're just like these people from the North. And I've always kind of read their group as these guys that have sort of come from all these different places with this extended network. And and the Vikings were, you know, the Northmen, whatever you want to call them, they were for a period of time, like the greatest navigators in the world and had huge networks of trade and travel. So I've always kind of read it as, you know, these are just these guys that have come from all these different places. I mean, one of them is not only doing a Scottish accent, but he's wearing a kilt, you know, and he's got red, yeah. fiery red hair. I, and I, I just kind of feel that, that they're, they're meant to just be this, I don't know, like alliance of people from all these different areas of Europe and, and, and sort of representing that. It's something I've also really liked about it because it gives them all in their own way uh, just something unique. Sure. Or like as opposed to just the, you know, monotonous and deadpan performances that you find in a Brisson film. I mean, in, in Lancelot, right, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with a Brisson film, he typically casts non-professional actors and he wants them to perform without affect. And this film feels like it has an extra layer of spiritual purity because of that. Witnessing these people walk around 
refusing to emote, saying everything matter-of-factly, it honestly feels like you're in a holy space looking at old religious artwork from the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that is a, a radical contrast with the you know collection of misfit Vikings that all have their own eccentric personalities and speaking patterns. And not to, you know, just because, you know, the, the new kids in the hall has been on my mind, but did, do you guys also think that like, that one Viking guy looks like Dave Foley. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was, like, losing my mind throughout the movie. I was, like, thinking about that a lot. Yeah, specifically at times he looks like Dave Foley in drag, which I thought was kind of funny because he's got yeah. that long, beautiful hair. Right. But, they're all, yeah, they're they're also warm with each other. I mean, you know, I think I can I can see Andy, like, what you were talking about, and Ryan, with the camaraderie here where, like, yeah, it is ultimately this movie of bonding, right? And uh, on the other hand, yeah, it's not just that they're all, like, not emoting, but they all are also, like, hating each other in the movie as well, which adds this, like, extra dimension of just, like, yeah, these, these... You know, Lancelot is played by an abstract painter. Yeah. Like, it's just weird as fuck, man. (laughs) Well, and and again, I mean, I think it... That for Brisson is so intentional that these men will will walk up to one another and say, you are my brother, I would do anything for you, but in a way in which there's like nothing behind it. And again, seeing what ultimately happens to this kingdom, it's all a part of that. This idea that they were once brothers, they would once die for each other, and now they're all going to just fucking start killing each other. Chivalry's dead, baby. Yeah, you know, jealousy, infighting, Mordred. Son of a fucking ass. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is the first time I saw it, and I think this is the case of any Brisson film. You know, the first time I see it, I'm really just kind of like hanging on for dear life. And I am I am just trying to to soak up all of that in, intention. I'm trying to 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 get into his headspace. I, I, I feel like Brisson's films, they are an attempt to sort of like hypnotize the audience, you know? And and once I'm hypnotized by him, I'm just I'm just there. I'm 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 in it. You know, his his great line that's often repeated, I'd rather you you feel the film before you understand it. And I think that's what happens the first time I watch a Brisson film. I am just feeling it. But it takes multiple viewings for me to then understand it. And with this film, you know, this time around, I was laughing a lot. And I, I think I was seeing his weird deadpan humor come through so much that when you have these actors who are emotionlessly uh, communicating with one another, you know, with straight faces and yet zinging each other, insulting one another and like having like huge moments where it's like that guy got fucking owned, but it's like, it's delivered with no inflection whatsoever and no emphasis. C'est Artus qui vous envoie pour me parler. Je viens à vous directement. Votre seigneurie m'honore, mais moi je pense qu'il vaut mieux laisser les choses comme elles sont. Que voulez-vous Votre amitié contre la mienne. Nous sommes au service du même roi, tous les deux. Il écoute vos conseils, il n'écoute pas les miens. Nous sommes égaux. Notre table de délibération a été faite ronde pour qu'il n'y ait pas de préséance. Une écharpe de femme Vous la reconnaissez Non, pas si vous me la cachez. 
Mordred, si je vous tends la main droite, la refuserez-vous It all comes through, you know, for me. And him sort of saying, like, well, once you take all of that out, once you take all the acting out, once you take all the emoting out, you're able to really, like, zero in on the passion that's actually uh, internal here. So, you know, it is playful. It, I think some people might look at it on the surface and just be like, God, there's no life here. And I'm like, it's the complete opposite. There's like the most life here. By stripping it down to its most minimal essence, uh, you can find the, the joy and the humor in what he's doing, the love and the attention to every detail. Like the clanking of the armor, which we've gone over, I think, quite a bit already. <laughs> to me, this time around, I was like, He's having a laugh here. It's like a joke because he's going, how ridiculous is it that these guys are all trying to sneak around when behind go, oh each other's God. back? When he goes into church, there's yeah. a moment where Lancelot just like rolls into church and, and in Brisson fashion, we're just like seeing, you know, his feet in this suit of armor. And it's, he's just destroying, you know, the, the beautiful kind of peaceful silence of this chapel. Yeah. I mean, even when at a certain point we talked about, you know, the trysts that are happening between Laszlo and Guinevere, there's like a moment where they've like snuck into their little, uh, you know, cathedral or wherever they are, their little private little sanctuary. Yeah, like and, and Mordred, you know, he's got his guys and they want to like come and they're going to sneak up on him. And it's like, you hear him coming a fucking mile away, you know, when they're sneaking through the woods, like here yeah. comes these yeah. idiots trying to be stealth and it's just like they're they're all wearing pots and pans you know Guenièvre mon cœur Prends ce cœur prends cette âme il t'appartient C'est ton corps que je veux Prends ce corps interdit prends-le ressuscite-le Yeah, honestly, there are times when this movie feels like the loudest movie I've ever heard in my life. When if you took like the actual decibel levels of this movie and compared it to The 13th Warrior, I think it would be radically different. But I also think that it does really, it really relates to what you're saying, Andy, about how these emotionless performances can still feel so incredibly evocative. It's similar to how these sounds can feel so loud and so all-encompassing because of all these things that are isolated. I mean, it's just Brisson films hit different by paring everything down to its simplicity it all registers with such a thunderous force that you wouldn't expect. And I feel like it's something that in just anyone else's hands, it would all sort of fall apart and it would just like turn into a joke. Again, like we're talking about these deadpan performances. Think about when Gawain is talking to um, Lancelot and he mentions like, oh, Mordred, like you, you remember when that fucker splashed you? And you accused him of being rude to your horse. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> 
<laughs> and yeah, it's like, it's funny, but it does also feel like a real beef. It, you can feel that passion and that anger, but it's not coming across through actual performed emotions. I mean, I think the zenith of, of everything you guys are talking about is the tournament uh, sequence in this film, because it, you know, to your point, Andy, it has a pun- it has multiple punchlines that are like worthy of night riders, you know, like as you know long story short right this like nearby kingdom you know uh invite, Escalo yeah Escalo invites them to a to a jousting tournament and at first Lancelot uh is gonna go but then he backs out at the last minute because he wants to have sex with Guinevere while everyone's away but then he has second thoughts and he shows up late visor down unidentified night uh and proceeds to you know just wreck every motherfucker in the tournament as this unidentified <laughs> knight. And as he begins doing this, uh, it keeps cutting back to Gavan, as they call him in the French version, right? With King Arthur. And they just start whispering back and forth to each other, Lancelot. Dude. And then, like, the, the way that the inflection slightly changes as they, like, are getting more confidence that it is him. Oh, he would totally do this, you know, just show up with his visor down and beat the shit out of everyone. Like, and it is very comical to me the way he's cutting back to them and they're just like, and then we're bow off at it again. And he keeps making that joke. I think it's there, you know? And then like, the ritualistic aspect of the joust and the sounds, of course, yeah, are just <laughs> out of this world. I mean, that Raise sequence, the flag, baby. <laughs> that sequence is one of the most exhilarating set pieces that obviously Versailles ever done, but just in general, and it's something that on paper simply cannot evoke what it what it does in practice. Like if I had seen the storyboard for a jousting scene and it was what Brisson did, <laughs> I'd be like, really? <laughs> like are you sure? <laughs> Is this how yeah. you want to shoot this? And then when you see it both the ritualistic quality, the way that images repeat how whenever someone gets on a horse, it's it's shown in a succession of images that are all framed the exact same way and almost the sounds sound identical as they're being lifted up onto their horses or when the actual jousting is occurring and as Rosenbaum says the the jousting images look like we're, they're being seen from the corner of someone's eye we're never seeing anything directly head on and even then when the crowd is rapturous and excited we're typically never seeing them we're just hearing them it's something that it feels like on paper it's all the wrong ingredients and then when it's put together by a master like this it's somehow so exciting it's incredible. Yeah, imagine if uh, Michael Crichton and those Disney executives got a hold of it. You know, imagine yeah. that. It would have been oh a $20 million reshoot ordered immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like most of the time, he's cutting to uh, the the losing jouster as they're falling after the hit, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But of course there is, yeah, you know, like any Brisson film, it's, it's full of repetitions and whether they're in succession or throughout the film like the uh queen's window that everyone looks at throughout to evoke this yeah sense of uh lust and longing within all these men but the yeah the way the tournament scene unfolds with the 
the bagpipe uh, recurring uh, sort of musical motif. Everyone gets their banner raised and it repeats the same frame, the same shot. We watch the horses, you know, round uh, the, the track and watch their their hooves as they're galloping. I mean, it's crazy, mm-hmm. right? But uh, again, a big old crash of pots and pans. <laughs> yeah, a huge, <laughs> a huge crash. Yeah. I mean, dude, it is probably pots and pans. Uh, Rosenbaum notes in his piece that just the sound mixing took three and a half weeks. And one of the things they needed was a horse like biting into something and they couldn't find the effect. So Brisson recorded himself like chewing on something. <laughs> and so that's how intensely, yeah, like the, the sound work of course uh, is coming. And I think, you know, as the tournament sequences is, is the zenith of this style and of this film, I think uh, there's, similarly a middle film set piece uh, in the 13th Warrior that I think is very much uh, top tier McTiernan, right? Which is the fire uh, battle sequence at which point I just like stopped taking notes entirely and was just marveling at McTiernan flexing his fucking Hollywood muscle to do, you know, basically like a a Zulu thing with Beowulf, you Mm -hmm. know, and all these, uh, these Vendal, right? With like torches coming out of the mountain in the distance. The fire of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's fucking crazy. It's so cool. And I think that one of the things I liked most about the 13th Warrior was its incredible location photography. So it's shot up in British Columbia and it's shot during a time of year that is extremely moody. And McTiernan really taps into that. He he wants as much mist as possible to evoke like, you know, this lost time of the Vikings. I mean, when they first arrive, it's like entirely enshrouded in mist, but that specific fight scene is so cool because the the mountain mist makes this long procession of torches. As they say, it looks like a fire serpent. You know, and that is what it looks like on screen. It's incredible how they pull that off because there are just a couple moments of CGI that look really shitty, like late 90s. It is so few and far between that they ever bother to do it. Most of the film has this incredible scale of practical uh, achievements in terms of like how they shot it. And that in particular felt like they were waiting for specific weather. I love when weather is present in a film because most films, especially like Hollywood films being shot in California, just don't have weather. And yeah, yeah, that the way those torches look in those mountains is just so cool. You know, we've talked about this. You've brought this up several times, you know, the the sort of like imperfect object in, in cinema being something that deserves, I think, second chances, second looks, and that sort of thing. You know, this to me, I consider one of the great four elements films in in cinema, certainly in Hollywood, because every element is featured so prominently and given such care in its presentation. The mud, the earth, you know, and and the, 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 the different textures you get from that. The, the great windstorm that, that carries them across these oceans, you know, these, these tempests that, that are throwing this, this ship back and forth and, and, and being, you know, the, the, the thing that carries the mist 
over this land, the fire that we've described and, and the role that that's going to play. It's truly a, a feast in, in a way that, you know, it's very different than Brisson, but I think there is a lot of emphasis on the tactile in this film. You know, we really do get a sense of of what it would be like to, to slog through this mud, mm -hmm. to fight in the middle of a disgusting, like, quagmire and rainstorm, like how devastating fire can be. All of these things are, are so, so well delivered by McTiernan and his cinematographer, Peter Menzies Jr., who has shot some, some really great films. But this dude shot White Sands, you know, and if you oh, see White yeah. Sands, like... <laughs> Recently watched it on a plane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at the desert in that. It's insane. And and yeah, I think that that they had a lot going on. It's part of the reason why the the budget really started to balloon and, and things were were for the executives getting, getting out of hand. And if you're going to go and do all this and you're going to deliver something that has such such visual uh, uh, panache, so, such such flair, damn well they're going to want a fucking happy ending, right? And I think that's, that's, that's ultimately like where the thing started to fall apart is that you can see the attention to detail. You can see that McTiernan was really focused on the look and the feel of this movie and this period um, and then, you know, these fucking suits and everybody balked at it. And then, you know, I mean, you really, I do think when you're watching it, like you can really clearly see the moments where suddenly like, there's McTiernan's footage and there's fucking Crichton's footage. Like, and, and yeah, I think so too. It's, it's in that attention to, to the, the land, to the texture of wherever they are. And also a, a dead giveaway is usually what the camera is doing because McTiernan is a busy motherfucker with the camera and Michael Crichton's got jack shit on him in terms of that. I mean, McTiernan, every opportunity he is dollying or doing a crazy steady cam shot or, you know, going extreme macro into someone's eyes or an object or even going like full John Ford wide landscape shot. I mean, it really does have it all in terms of, you know, the good old fashioned Hollywood cinematography, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that fire sequence that you guys have described, you know, when the, the, the glow worm, the fire worm, it's, it's, it's referred to shows up and it's just a bunch of cats with torches again i can tell that that thing was fucking chopped up too even beyond what mctiernan was planning because he has as you mentioned the steadicam shot of like the chaos as the battle's beginning and again perspective we're with uh, antonio banderas's character as he's like running through this long trench and there's a steadicam following him and it's just all this fucking production design and art direction and it's so busy there's so many fucking extras people are preparing buckets of water they're they're steadying these stakes in the ground they're putting on armor and he is just frantically running through this trench in this beautiful steady cam shot and i have to imagine like mctiernan's original shot there probably went on for a full fucking minute at least I'm you sure. know yeah that sequence too I think evokes something that I love about films set in the medieval period, and both of these films engage with this, and that is how films set in medieval times typically have 
much larger spiritual stakes than than other films both in terms of fantastical elements and also just religion and the power of religion both of these films engage with that so for example in the 13th warrior the enemy are perceived as monsters like actual mythical creatures these bear, you know, like berserkers, basically. And that is, you know, of course, that's the rug is pulled out from under that once they realize these creatures that have the appearance of bears but fight as men um, that cart off their dead after a battle so they can't tell who these who these creatures are. Of course, eventually, Banderas learns that these are just men that have the skin of bears wrapped over their shoulders. But there are so many details that contribute to this atmosphere and this fear of the enemy. We have the, as we said, the fire worm. And then we have these sequences that play out like a horror film when the berserkers show up and they're fighting in a, in a dark tight room and they, you know, we can't get a look at anybody's faces and we just see limbs falling and the claws of bears going after everybody's faces. And then something like Lancelot, the stakes emotionally feel so high because the reality of Christianity, it is it is such a severe reality to everybody's way of life and everything they're doing. When the quest for the Holy Grail has failed before the film starts and Lancelot returns and he's talking to Guinevere, he has this fear of, have we provoked God? Is that why we feel this death? Is that why we feel this emptiness? Is that why I feel completely disconnected to my fellow members of the round table? Is cynicism winning the day here because we provoked God? And there's these stakes of that our actions can result in things like that. How can we forget our quarrels and cultivate friendship when we've confronted God in this way and potentially like affronted him? Well, you know, speaking of that, uh, it's, it's really interesting that you bring this up because, again, for me, another thing about this movie that makes The 13th Warrior a very unique artifact of a certain time period in American cinema uh-huh. is that our main character, again, the person that we are uh, meant to be identifying with, in this case, in the classic Hollywood tradition, is a very devout Muslim man. I mean, this is 1999. This is two years before September 11th, where we are going to see a total shift, a a complete sea change in the presentation of the Muslim faith on screen and and Islam and Islamic characters. Uh, But here, like, we're rooting the audience's perspective in a Muslim man, and not just that, but in the grand scheme of this world and this time period, it is, historically speaking, a moment when you know, Islamic kingdoms were the center of the civilized world. He even opens by saying like, look, at I'm with these shitty ass Vikings on this boat. I'm puking over the side of it, heading off to fight monsters. I just came from the greatest city in the world. Again, they, they sort of knocked the film because of the casting, of course. Like, yes, they cast a Spanish guy to play a Muslim guy. They got an olive skinned actor to play an olive skinned man. But still, to me, it's like, go one step beyond that sort of knee-jerk reaction to bad Hollywood casting and 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 focus on the fact that when is the last time you've seen Hollywood 
like root an, a great adventure film around like a devout Muslim man and that religion isn't being presented to us as something exotic or oriental in any way, but as like the essence of humanity, the essence of civilization. Yeah, I mean, just acknowledging that the Arab world was the most culturally advanced civilization in the world at the time is something that I feel is absent from any other medieval depiction I can think of. Well, in contemporary, right now, it's yeah. like, you know, how many times have you seen a Hollywood movie where it's like, oh, cut to Syria and like weird Orientalist theme plays and it looks like they're in the fucking Stone Ages, you know, and that's the mm. whole point. It's like... <gasps> Oh, you can't deal with Afghans. They're they're like talking to cavemen, you know? Like even in 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 Hollywood's attempts today to try to like be like, "Oh, you know, we've really fucked up the Middle East." They still present the Middle East as this like just ass backwards shithole mm. of humanity that's been left behind. I think it's a really daring film from a a a moment that, you know, again, we we talk a lot about like end of history films. It's like this is like one of the end of history films. And it's like at the end of the end of that history period or whatever you want to call it. There's also that moment when they first arrive to the Northmen's territory when the the shore is like completely enshrouded in mist and they don't actually know how close they are to land. And they call out to Odin and they, you know, they say their prayers. And when they finally arrive on the beach, one of the Vikings because it's the only thing he knows how to write and has just recently learned it from Banderas's character, he he uses a stick to write out in the sand, you know, a message to to Muhammad uh, and you know, praising him as to me, which I interpreted as like an act of solidarity and respect, saying like we've brought you along, we've just praised Odin upon finding land here, and now I'm also acknowledging your belief system. And there's like a nice moment where you know Banderas corrects him and says like the prophet like you need to add mm-hmm. that little extra bit in, in the sand there but there is like a tolerance on display even if the casting is intolerant that i still found rather interesting for yeah. a film from the late 90s for all the things that got cut out of it the little subplot where he's like teaching a, a viking arabic is still in yeah. there and the quran you know? at that. Yeah. yeah and the quran at that and you know similarly uh, Brisson originally uh, wanted to have a sort of uh, cross-cultural dimension to his film. He w- originally wanted to shoot the film in English and in French at the same time. So like dual, you know, talky style or wow. whatever that they, you know, did in 1930 mm-hmm. 30 or whatever. And the producers were like, no. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy when you think about it, because in a way, it seems one of the reasons he wanted to do that was this thing will be gangbusters in the UK. Like, we got to do this in English so more people see it. So it is funny that 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 got shot down, that he wasn't provided those resources. Well, they did a dubbed version. That's why. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he also wanted to call it Le Graal, and they vetoed that as well. Uh. So. Because they probably were like, well, there's no grail in it. Yeah, just like, no, don't you understand? It's the the spiritual... Anyway, try explaining that to a producer, you know? Well, yeah, and again, when you, like, go back to that whole, like, religion thing as well, I I, I think it's so important that we, we start on this note of them saying, you know, like, the grail, and we see the grail, like, the image of the grail prominently, and it's like... And they blew it, you know? And then one of the first... One of the first moments, I think... 
either right before or right after that is is like one of the knights like storming into a church and like knocking over a crucifix like and being like you know fuck this this is all this is all bullshit you know like we have failed and god has has failed us you know like it, it kind of cuts both ways there's this sense of of betrayal that they feel even from this you know, new religion, which it was for those nights, mm-hmm. uh, you know, converting to Christianity and then going on this great quest for, for something that, yes, definitely wouldn't be in Brittany, considering like <laughs> where, where it came from, you know? I love when Guinevere like holds Lancelot accountable for his goals and motives for going on this quest when she does accost him and say that thinking you are responsible for all of these catastrophes is not humility and that you are not alone in your pride. It was not the grail that you were seeking. You wanted God. And I thought that that was like an interesting subversion of their goals and you know what they may have been seeking as you know these these knights on their quest for the holy grail and again it comes back to that spiritual severity of everything you wanted god like you are Mm -hmm. this this envious man who is trying to seek glory even if you pretend you're not and if you were wondering if Brisson thinks that these knights provoked God, uh, the film opens with a, a knight having his head chopped off and the blood dripping out of the stump onto the grass. And then there's a montage of what I just wrote as war crimes, right? Because we don't know who necessarily who these knights are when the film opens, but it just opens with carnage and swords being plunged into people's abdomens, heads being chopped off, religious icons being destroyed. Uh, and then, yes, we, we cut to the, the very long credits titles uh, opening, a scroll worthy of Star Wars, where it <laughs> lays out, you know, the eh, they went into the grail it didn't work you know episode four <laughs> <laughs> exactly and and yeah i mean it's devastating and it and it proceeds from there again that yeah that feeling of decay from all that carnage yeah and it speaks to brisson's own approach to uh religion and spirituality which i think we've already kind of discussed a little bit um tonight but you know, he presents this as a, a tragedy, maybe an inevitable tragedy, because Brisson would, you know, uh, get, I think, a lot more cynical as, at least on a certain level, his films would be seemingly very cynical, like, as he got older, as his, as he moved on in his career. You know, the jump from something like this to Les Argent is, is it's an inevitable sort of trajectory, right? But, but he sees it as a tragedy that, yes... These men were seeking an object instead of actually perhaps bettering themselves or or you know noticing the trees in the forest. Instead, they're they're wearing suits of armor and bashing each other on the head. It's sort of it's sort of I think his his really kind of sad look into our inability to recognize transcendental beauty uh, in the world around us. You know, not some holy relic, but the journey for the holy relic. And for them, 
Like, the journey was a nightmare. You know, that's all they would talk about was how awful the fucking journey was. Where did Percival go? Yeah, because they didn't get the thing that they were seeking instead of sort of appreciating the fact that the quest was meant to just simply be an opportunity for them all to better themselves. And, and I think, again, we've, we've sort of mentioned Excalibur in Borman's film, you know, and Borman's film, like, nails that so well, you know, that it was never about the grail itself. You know, what do they say in that film? What is Percival told in Borman's film? The grail is within you, you know? And, and, and Brisson's film is showing us quite clearly, yeah, they, they sure didn't recognize that. Yeah. And and Lancelot totally misses the read too, you know. As as Guinevere accuses him, you know, you blame our love for all the shit that's gone down, but like, you guys just like went around and beheaded a bunch of people, you <laughs> yeah, know, like yeah. get real. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I do want to point out too <laughs> a connection we haven't made yet is uh, the uh, sort of like cucking aspect of both movies because it is in fact you know it's a brief opening which i read you know they shot more stuff of like banderas in the middle east you know living his life but then they just like cut it all out in that prologue yeah i've heard there's like an hour missing from the film yeah there's like yeah again i think i really do think mctiernan was make think thought he was making the seven samurai so i think he also thinks the film is like three hours and 20 minutes long because when, yeah, the film wraps up at like an hour 40, whatever, you go like, yeah, there's, it feels like an hour is, is, oh, yeah. is missing. You Definitely. Know? Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, that's, you know, of course, what gets Ibid or Ahmad uh, sent up to Europe anyway, is that, you know, he uh, falls in love with the wrong woman, a woman who's married to someone very powerful, who has the ear of the caliph, you know? Uh, so I think it, it is interesting that, I guess the cat, like a catalyst in both films, is the Middle Ages transgressing a marriage, right? Adultery uh, in that sort of severity of spirituality and politics, right? Like they send, you know, both films in in crazy directions, and it's all because you know just smooching on some guy's wife. Yes. And that's been pointed out, I think, about the actual character uh, in real life, was that it was this situation where uh, it was one of those promotions that's a punishment, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That, hey, we got a great job for you. We're going to make you an ambassador. Yeah, right? go to Bulgaria. Yeah, we're like, going to get you that? as far away from our kingdom as possible. <laughs> I also love that both films treat very seriously the wisdom of old women, um, both deployed in, in different ways. There is, as we mentioned, that older woman in Lancelot that has that line about if a man's footsteps precedes him, he'll be dead within the year. There's also another prophetic old woman that is borderline speaking tongues at certain moments in the 13th warrior. And it's mainly just because of her, uh, her fervor, you know, she's, she's on the ground. She's got long gray hair. She looks like something out of Shakespeare. McTiernan's log lady. Yeah, truly. (laughs) Absolutely. You know me. I have ears. Warrior says the wind. Chieftain says the rain. But why seek you me? Met you your match? Met you your match with the eaters of the dead. We seek your wisdom. Wars are one in the will. Perhaps. 
Perhaps you've been fighting in the wrong field. But yeah, she's consulted at multiple points throughout the film. A favorite of mine being, of course, when she's laying on the ground for the entirety of her consultation when they're trying to just be like, okay, how are we going to kill these big bear men? And she's just like cryptically giving them answers as she's relaxing on the floor looking at the fire. Yeah, I think that too, you really do see that there is in what's missing, like in the the negative space of this movie, which is interesting because that's another sort of connection that that the movie really opens up uh, the 13th warrior if you if you do think about the spaces between that have been cut out or removed, and you could see all of the ideas that are there, uh, that this for McTiernan was, yes, one part seven samurai, one part predator. I mean, there's there's yeah. a very similar structure to predator. Yeah, creatures you know? coming out of the woods. Well, yeah, know? and yeah. just the, the the idea of like a guy hooking up with all these like ultra masculine bros and just being like, can I hang with these these macho tough guys? All go into a forest slash jungle and are beset upon by creatures that are ripping people apart, cutting them up, and decapitating them. But there is like. In a brief moment, you really do see that there was also supposed to be a procedural element in here because his character specifically is looking at all these, these quote, like backwards Vikings, these pagans who, who you know, have multiple gods and, and see creatures coming from the mist. But like they even go on a little like, you know, crime scene investigation at one point where there's like a yeah. farm and, and they're trying to reconstruct what happened. And that was in uh, the original novel. Again, of course, of Cri- yeah. Michael Crichton, like it's Beowulf, but as a crime procedural, a forensic investigation into this. And it's like this whole game of fucked up, twisted pagan telephone that leads people to be afraid of what's in the mist. And his job is to come in and like dispel that mist and say, no, 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 there's an explanation for all this, folks. I'm here to to drag you folks into the Middle Ages and out of the Dark Ages. You know, there's just so much packed in. It's just such a shame that it isn't three hours to really, like, dive into that stuff. Release the McTiernan cut. (laughs) I mean, I I do want to point out the inevitable I was thinking all week about this moment because uh, the 13th warrior, of course, uh, after they go see, you know, the old woman and and figure out how they're going to, you know, get this whole ordeal over with. Well, they can't just sit behind those walls forever. No, they can't just be being besieged upon, right? Just like in Lancelot, they got to go attack, you know? And this leads to yet another commando raid <laughs> yes it is and but this one in particular is like a death metal commando raid oh yeah it's so sick that this was my favorite chunk of the movie i mean i i loved the serpent worm like that shit was so cool but i loved them going in this nasty cave and the color of the film looks just it, it, it's almost monochromatic but not quite it's like a little bit of sepia it but it's just it's, it's like dark. black and orange and they yeah. got like knives in their mouth yeah. and they're like crawling swimming and yeah. crawling going up Climbing. and down ropes yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like the ultimate commando raid when you think of a commando raid this is it yeah, this is like the original, yeah. Yeah, swinging on ropes across a waterfall. Yeah, and then just the deeper they go in, the more 
bones they are. I mean, first they're greeted with those insane bones of like creatures that they've got strung up. It's like bear skulls on top of a giant pole, and then it almost feels like they're given wings. It's it's something that obviously if if I had encountered on the road, I probably wouldn't go venturing inside of that cave. But yeah, deeper in, just the the amount of bones that are lit by candlelight is so awesome. There's also a really great moment of bones at the very beginning of Lancelot, where after we see all of those (laughs) war crimes, as we've attributed them, there's an amazing shot of two soldiers strung up, still in their armor, but they're just skeletons, and there are crows, like, pecking at their flesh. Mm -hmm. Those are those little moments where I, you know, I say I want to watch a film set in the medieval times. Like, those are the surface-level pleasures that really get, get me going. But absolutely, this commando raid into just like this bone deep dark hellscape the bone cave yes yeah, so and, awesome you know it, it is too again like a, a a culture melding right because you know they think they're monsters Banderas is like nah they're just men dressed up as monsters but you know they sort of meet in the middle because the ultimate truth is that they're they are men but they think they're bears and have been raised as bears and act as bears so uh again yeah it's a little bit of both you know like yeah they are maybe they're not monsters but they're beasts they're not really like us you know um and and so they confront yeah this cave full of these bear monsters they're sneaking around and then they you know like in beowulf right they go to find the mother, Angelina Jolie. Oh, wait, no, that's the other. Um, that's, yeah. That's, that's Beowulf. That's, that's, that's Robert CGI. Zemeckis' yeah. Beowulf. You know, I did read, uh, I, I read that they shot uh, this sequence with the, the mother uh, three times. Reshoot. Oh, yeah. They changed the actress every time because Crichton and McTiernan disagreed on whether she should be old or young or more like a monster, more like a human. And so they shot three versions of the the confrontation in the in the wow. cave. Well, when McTiernan turned in his first cut and they just fucking rejected it outright and hated it and ordered all those reshoots, Crichton's like, I'm stepping in. I'm gonna I'm gonna direct the shit. And McTiernan insisted, no, 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 give me a crack at it too. So part of why the budget became so crazy was because McTiernan had his unit and his crew and they were reshooting scenes and Crichton and his team were reshooting scenes. And then they presented both of the reshot footage together. So McTiernan steadfast was like, no, 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 no. It's my vision. Give me a crack at it as well. And like had some contractual shit that probably allowed him to do so. You know, otherwise he was going to sue them or whatever. Or tap their phones. Yeah, well, this film sent at least two people down a, a terrible, like, spiral of, like, doubt and paranoia and disgust. One of whom is Omar Sharif, who apparently, like, took a huge break from acting after this movie. Like, he said he had such a miserable experience making it. He hated his character. I think he felt that he was a sort of cartoonish Muslim character. And and he took a huge break for several years on on acting until he felt he had a, a quality role. But for McTiernan, I mean, he you know, really felt that the the studios were conspiring against him and and it it just really fucked with his confidence in a major way. During the post-production process, when he was, in his mind, getting fucked over, he's like, screw this, I'm going to go make the Thomas Crown affair. And that's what ultimately led on that production 
to him like wiretapping producers because he was so paranoid about losing his control of being perceived as something that that you know he didn't want to be perceived as and I'm certainly not defending what he did but I just find it so fascinating that like this is the the movie and this is the experience that just like sent him down that that spiral that ultimately wound up uh, getting him in fucking prison, you know? I mean, it's just so fucked up, too, because at the end of the day, this movie was a financial disaster. So how much less of a financial disaster would it have been if you had simply let John McTiernan make the movie he wanted to make, regardless of whatever the test audience said, just release his movie? Mm-hmm. It would have been a significantly better situation than what happened, right? I mean, it is fucking ludicrous. And that's why, to me, it's also, like, such a perfect representation for the kind of, like, end of that phase of, like, Hollywood high-concept history. You know, after September 11th, a major shift in in the approach to, like, high-concept cinema happens, you know, a new phase of of big-budget filmmaking, new strategies, more lawyers, more executives, more board members, you know, like... More analytics. More intellectual property. Yeah, more, more like, pre-proven, pre-tested material than even before. We're not going to be creating intellectual property here. We're going to be playing it safe. There's a reason this film has a French and German Blu-ray and not an American one, and that's because people in France and Germany see John McTiernan as an auteur. And yeah, this film did well in Europe. And it also, yeah, destroyed McTiernan. And it's Disney, you know? It's mm-hmm. Buena Vista. It's t- it's Touchstone, you know? They brought in Jerry Goldsmith to replace the score that he had commissioned, mm-hmm, which yeah. I think that soundtrack may be available on some, ver- some home video version of this movie. They stripped him of everything. They, yeah. they took his life away with they, this I movie. Mean, they really did. And, and it's, again, why this... This double feature is is so blessed and and so cursed, you know, because like the the flip side is uh, a film by a filmmaker who has total control. And (laughs) there is not a single producer who had a goddamn thing to say to Brisson about this film other than what we we already talked about. You (laughs) can't you can't cost us money to, to shoot it twice in English. And otherwise, there is really one person who made this film, you know? And McTiernan, try as he might, but there were many, many people who made The 13th Warrior, you know? I was even thinking specifically about this just because there were recently all of these articles I saw that got posted within, like, the last two days about Robert Eggers for The Northman, which is, like, a new Viking film that just came out uh, that didn't do so hot, and... His the quotes I keep seeing for all these headlines is Robert Eggers feels he needs to quote unquote re-strategize after the Northman and thinking about an auteur or even like John McTiernan after the Thirteenth Warrior, his language being I need to re-strategize. You know, it already shows the way that the act of creating a film through American financing has been corrupted with that type of corporate language. Oh, this piece of art that you made didn't make a bunch of money. You better re-strategize. Mm-hmm. What, what a kind weird of fucked thing up to shit say. Is that? Yeah. yeah, McTiernan would never fucking say that. 
that. Um, no, and, you just uh, hire a private dick and then tap your fucking phones. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, one of my favorite things about McTiernan, uh, number one, is the, is the very legendary diehard commentary that everyone, including me, loves. But in that, you know, he, he very explicitly talks about how his film school teachers were Czech New Wave guys. So I think it is a funny connection that, like, McTiernan comes from a place of, yes, like the, the art house, or at least those are the guys he learned from and respected. He talks about how much he loved those guys and how much he learned from them, and that even in a high-concept Hollywood setting, uh, he's a real fucking filmmaker and he's a real artist. And I think, again, I think that's one of the things these films share is both of these filmmakers think about surfaces, they think about texture, they think about light, they think about objects, they think about all those things interacting. You know, again, that artist's mentality that McTiernan has in a totally different context from Brisson, but uh, they share that. And I wouldn't be surprised if McTiernan was a fan, you know? Certainly. Oh, yeah. I would definitely agree. I mean, especially when you bring up that idea of surfaces, because so many of his, his films uh, I see as, uh, you know, wrapped around a, a particular type of surface. You know, like Die Hard is a glass movie. It's about glass. Everything is glistening like glass. Predator is, is a movie about the jungle. Everything is swallowed up by these vines. Things are just happening, you know, in these trees and, and all that stuff. And, and again, here we talked about the, the elements and how present they are. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a fan of Brisson. There was one scene in particular that I wish was in Lancelot and was surprised it wasn't. And that's when Banderas is having a hard time falling asleep on the floor because all of the men are in a big circle and they're snoring very, very loudly. Um, we needed a good like nighttime snoring scene, I think, in, um, in Lancelot. Though to be fair, I guess most of the noises and sounds we hear are not the ones coming from voices and the noises humans make physically but the actual surfaces and things that they carry on them and the things they interact with there's also a funny moment in the 13th warrior when they're sort of setting up their fortress for an impending battle and there's a conversation happening and Banderas is talking to someone and in the background there's just one man with a mallet whacking a stake repeatedly and I had leaned over to Molly and said that's a Brisson character right there this is someone who spilled over from Lancelot repeatedly whacking the stake and we could hear it we could hear that noise (laughs) Yeah, because there's that great moment, a moment that really blew me away uh, again this time around in Lancelot du Lac is just when like there's a storm that rolls through. Yes. Yeah. Uh, The storm rolls through and it's like everyone kind of like scurries into their tents and then this like little army of squires comes scurrying in and it's like no words are said. There's no like quick, we've got to deal with something. They all know exactly what they need to do in this moment. And they all grab mallets and run to the tents and just start working the stakes of the tents in deeper, knowing that this storm is going to be really tumultuous uh, on all these like canvas uh, tents. And they're just all just banging away on those stakes. And he really just lingers on that the sound of these men just focusing on their work of trying to basically batten down the hatches for this storm. It's Mm -hmm. great.
the Rosenbaum piece draws attention to that and makes a funny note that that is actually an anachronistic moment, and the film has a bunch of purposefully anachronisms. The chess set that that wouldn't have existed then, and the way those tents are designed, those would not have looked like that during the time period. So it's funny thinking about when filmmakers go really hard with anachronism on purpose, like Alex Cox's Walker, where someone drives through in a big car. But here, Brisson's like, I'm going to sneak in a chess set and tense <laughs> because I'm a punk. You know? mm-hmm. That's right. He's, uh, he's, he's the modern sensibility invading he's, the film as well. Yeah, he is the original bad boy. That's true. <laughs> he he That's certainly true. is. And then it's funny. Yeah, I mean, there are like some big plot points and battles that happen in Lancelot, but again, they are primarily off screen um, because a lot of these frustrations sort of come to a head and Lancelot has to confront his friends, his former friends. Uh, He even injures Gawain and we have Gawain like wrapped up on the floor like a little mummy and he's got red paint on on the bandages, you know, very much like a French portrayal of like a wounded man with that's bleeding out especially when you think there's going to be this big climactic battle i mean compare the the death metal commando raid in 13th warrior when we think we're suiting up you know getting our horses ready and heading straight into what should be a cataclysmic fight uh instead we just see the dark forest and the horses running away from the battle that we uh were not able to witness ourselves well, again, right, that goes back to what we've been discussing in terms of, you know, Besson's interest. It's, it's, it's not in the sort of like externalizing of so many emotions and a, and a fight is the ultimate uh, externalization of, of conflict. Again, you talk about inevitability and, and that's the point. It's like all the drama the the decisions the 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 choices the 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 fates of all these characters are sealed you know over a chess set over a, a perceived slight over an argument about the moon that in the end like yes it's going to fall they're all going to kill each other of course like what, do you really want to watch them all kill each other? Like, they're, they're, it's over. They're done. They killed each other. Look what happened. Like, Lancelot killed his fucking best friend. Like, where do you even go from there? Now you really want to see it happen? You want to see the knife actually plunge into his best friend, you sickos? Like, nah, this is us. This is what we're all doomed to on this planet of ours, you know? Our fates are sealed like theirs. No point in sensationalizing that aspect. By withholding that information, it makes those final images that much more profound and impactful just to see Lancelot, even though we can't see his face, his visor down, collapsing on top of all of his fallen brethren. And he's sort of reduced to just another pile of metal atop of just a, a pile of armor. You know, he's just another piece in the pile. He, he's almost no longer a man. He's faceless. And that image in itself is extremely tragic. The spirituality has evaporated from this world, and we have just devolved towards cynicism and petty grievances between people that we originally were comrades with. Yeah, it's one of the most searing end-of-the-world images in any film I've ever seen. I mean, it, it's a perfect final shot. Uh, an absolutely perfect final shot. 
and we don't even know it's it's him, you know, uh, until he says as he collapses, you know, Guinevere, right? And then we see a, a riderless horse and a bird in the sky. I mean, it it really is this, yeah, this very apocalyptic uh, sort of ending, one that Disney certainly uh, would not have let fly. Yeah, they would have brought in <laughs> they would have brought in the great filmmaker Michael Crichton to fix it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like one thing that's really interesting, though, too, is once once like shit starts moving, right? Like once their fates are truly sealed, as in, I guess, like once Lancelot, uh, having recovered from his uh, tournament wounds, decides to go back and rescue her and basically sets in in motion a series of attacks and counterattacks, this chain reaction that we were just talking about, right? But it moves, you know, we don't see these battles. Usually we see the aftermath of them or we hear people riding off. But like the film's kind of like flying at this point. Like we're cruising, you know? It is more efficient than a Hollywood film could ever dream of (laughs) because it's just like skipping over the main event and getting as much across in his own way, you know? Uh, it's it's really startling even because even like the, the carnage is introduced with all of a sudden like Lancelot like wanders into the frame with blood on his sword. And you're like, oh, okay, you know? And then it's just like a ball rolling downhill, but we're looking in a different direction or looking down at the ground <laughs> during it. <laughs> it's so funny how there are so many moments in the 13th Warrior that feel like huge scenes are missing <laughs> because McTiernan had shot a bunch of stuff and it was stolen from us. And in this instance, it's Brisson very purposefully stealing a bunch of set pieces away from us and it's up to us on purpose to put the pieces together. So in a way, the act of watching both films is very similar in that yeah, sense, yeah. filling in a lot of odd gaps. Both of them in their own way are, I think, a really good representation of uh, Alain Badiou's definition of the act of producing cinema, of making films. You know, he calls it an act of purification. And I think really when he describes that in his writings on cinema, like he has Bresson in mind particularly, you know, because he says, you know, we start with all this stuff And every stage of the filmmaking process is us actually removing things, you know? Uh, You'll film 10 takes, and then what do you do when you sit down and edit? You find the best one. You get rid of the other nine, you know? You're you're always purifying out, uh, you know, imperfect elements, things that you don't need, you know? And, and, you know, Marsh, one of the best editors I know, you can speak to that. That's, That's the job is is removing what you don't need. And and so Brisson in that in that sense to me is the most pure filmmaker because his movies are just what you need to feel things, right? To get a sense of what he's trying to get across. We don't need all that other stuff. That other stuff is just excess if you think about it. It is an act of purification. This is the the entire uh, Arthurian legend distilled into 80 minutes or something like that, mm-hmm. right? 82 minutes, whatever the runtime is. Uh, I mean, it, it, it truly is a, a, an incredible act of, of very intentional restraint in that sense. One other thing I would say, and I just have to point this out, but this happened to me the first time I watched this movie, and, and uh, this has uh, happened uh, yet again. Uh, anytime I watch 
this movie, I spend the next fucking day just walking around my apartment going, Laszlo, Laszlo. I kept saying it to my cat today, Lancelot. Dude, you could have, for all our listeners at home, if you haven't seen this movie, I would recommend if you want to have a really good time, you could make a really great drinking game out of this movie. And every time someone says, Laszlo, you take a drink and you will be fucking shit-faced by the end of it. (laughs) By the midpoint. By the midpoint, yeah. You're not going to make it, I can tell you. (laughs) Well, uh, I just keep thinking about Michael Crichton doing reshoots for Lancelot is such a funny idea. That's so cursed. Like, oh God, let's get Crichton in here to to, wrap, to fix this thing up, really embellish it. Yeah. <laughs> so Ryan, these were our picks. Uh, when you think of this time period, uh, what what comes to your mind? So it was funny when when I received the picks from both of you, and when I had decided the topic. I when sometimes I plan ahead and I think, oh, what'll be my throwback for the episode? And my throwback was going to be Lancelot because I just assumed that it wasn't going to be picked. So it was nice to have it picked, though. I'm so glad to have seen it again. And especially this new restoration, it gave me like a new perspective on what the film looks like. I had a very vivid memory of the uh, sheen of the movie. And I realized that that DVD was pretty false in certain respects. So it was nice to to revisit it. But I mean, when I think about films like set during the medieval period, the two that come to mind are by the same filmmaker, and that's the Czech filmmaker Frantisek Vlachil, particularly the film Marketa Lazarova, which I saw at like a really impressionable age when when Criterion put it out, and I when I saw it, I was just I hadn't seen anything like that before or since. Or since, yeah, I mean, its approach to space and time was just so different than most other films I had encountered. And I was, like, into international art cinema at that point. So, like, this film really operates on a totally different level. I mean, the best way to describe it is that the film evokes the feeling of reading a medieval tome, both in terms of the ellipses and the way it jumps around in time and the things it focuses on, but it also shares so many of the surface pleasures that we've talked about today. The tactile, the the outfits and sounds of the medieval period, um, all of that comes through there. He also made another film called The Valley of the Bees, which is another like incredible portrait of... Um, the medieval period so he was clearly obsessed with it and you can feel that while watching it um so yeah really like those a lot but i'm excited to create uh, another unique pairing um so marsh it, you're up next what, what what's our task well recently i've been finishing up a, a project that has uh, been been very intense in my life and taking up a lot of time and uh this this weekend, uh, I actually, you know, was working on this thing and I was up till fucking four in the morning at my age. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And and so I was thinking uh, about the topic and thinking about that as I was having my late night. Uh, and I thought that would be a, a good direction to go next. So the topic is up all night bring me films about the nighttime and nocturnal journeys from the evening to the morning from dusk till dawn from dusk till dawn in other words yes don't pick that 
<laughs> I'll bring the coffee. Andy, you bring the cocaine. Okay. <laughs> we got to stay up. We got to. We're getting old. We got to keep ourselves. Just outed up. me to all our listeners. Oh. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send an email to Marsh's Mailbag at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. We shall make praise for your safe passage. Praise to who? In your land, one god is perhaps enough, but we have need of many. I will pray to all of them for you. Do not be offended. And bring your dead. Across seas of monsters and forests of demons we traveled. Praise be to Allah, the merciful and compassionate. May his blessing be upon pagan men who loved other gods, who shared their food and shed their blood, that his servant, Ahmed ibn Fahlan, might become a man and a useful servant of God.